Susana's not here. Okay. We had baptisms last week. Oh, she is. Oh, okay. That's right. Okay, half our church is over there. <laughs> so, okay, well, we do want to recognize it. I'd like for you to help me in joining her. Number one, she joined membership. Number two, she got baptized this last Sunday. Uh, so she's growing in the Lord amazingly. I mean, it's just uh, awesome to see. And so that's what I have here for her. And I forgot she was in Sunday school today. All right, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For those of you that have uh, been with me for some time, you know that we've been going through the New Testament from Matthew all the way through uh, while we were in 1 Thessalonians. Now it's been years uh, as we do this. Uh, even today, uh, we're only going to touch on one verse uh, because it really just explodes as you look at it, as we're going to see it here in just a bit. But one of the things about uh, 1 Thessalonians, what Paul is doing, he's, uh, and just, just for recap, he's writing a letter to this church in Thessalonica where he was able to go in and minister the gospel to a lot of these people that were Gentiles, basically, and didn't know much about the Old Testament. And Paul took his time in sharing with him with them the, the, the information that he had for the, just the short amount of time that he had. Now, some people say he was only there for three weeks. Some say he was there for three months. Three months, three weeks, it was a short amount of time compared to the many, many other times that he's been in all these other cities like Corinth and Ephesus. He'd stay years there for time, at times and come back again. But in Thessalonica, he was rushed out. He was chased out of town because he was teaching this weird religion, supposedly. And a lot of people were getting saved and turning the world upside down. And so... They started to persecute him, and they persecuted some of the people that were in that city. So Paul left, and he was concerned about these people. And he says, you know, I'm going to write to them, see what happened. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to them. And he wrote the letter, gave it to Timothy. He, the, the, Timothy read the letter to the people in Thessalonica, and then Timothy came back with his awesome report. They're growing, they're abounding. The gospel message is being proclaimed. It's being sounded out through all over the place. And Paul was just overjoyed, and he was just really excited about what was going on. There were some concerns that they had. And uh, as we touched on uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago actually, the, one of the major concerns was in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the coming of the Lord. And we, we took some time in going over this because this is the portion of Scripture that talks to us about the rapture. Now, this is not a doctrinal letter or uh, it, it's not a theological statement as to how the rapture should take place or when it's going to take place. He doesn't really touch into that. What he was trying to do was comfort the people and say, look, it hasn't happened yet. It, it, it hasn't happened because those that were saved uh, after Paul left and people were dying and they were just, they were wondering what's going to happen to these guys. Because Paul, you told us that in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is coming and the day of the Lord has been sounding out from the Old Testament up to the day that you started talking to us about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And, and he's, we know he's coming. He's coming back. And just look at our society. Look at our culture. Look at what's going on in our world. He's got to come back. I mean, if he doesn't come back, I mean, it's all for nothing. And so, so they're really concerned about those that have died. And so what Paul did is he wrote them. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Some of your translations in verse 13 of chapter 4, some of your translations will say, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Now, we, we went over this at length, and I'm just going to touch on it right now, that when Paul says that when a person dies, they go to sleep. It's kind of like, some that ride to 
faraway lands, the bad lands, and they come home. The one thing you want to do is you want to go home and you want to go to sleep. You want to get to that place of resting. You've traveled all day long. I walked all of Knott's Berry Farm yesterday with my grandkids, and I wanted to come home and just sleep. I, I was tired. And Paul says that's how we look at death. For a Christian, time is done. I've worked my life and, and I've proclaimed the gospel and I've done all that I can and it's time for me to sleep. And Paul says, you fall asleep in the Lord. He says, those of you brothers that, that who, fall asleep, who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do that have no hope. Now, people that don't have any hope, their loved ones die. And there is no hope. As a matter of fact, here's something interesting that we noticed in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died, that was finality, it was done See, we fall asleep, but Jesus died to take care of our sin problem, to take care of the, the problem that we have and, and that we had. And Jesus took it away from us because he was punished on the cross and God unleashed all his punishment of, of all the sin of the world upon him. I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. You know, I'm he was condemned, but I'm, I'm alive and well because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so what Paul is trying to get across here is, look, you have to understand that those who died or those who fall asleep, in verse 15, for, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He goes again. He didn't say die. He said fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet. Three things have to take place before this coming of the Lord. Three things have to take place. Number one. He says he will, well, first of all, he descends and, he, and with the cry of command, there's going to be a command. All right, everybody, wake up. The voice of an archangel, the archangel is going to join in. We don't know who this archangel is. And, and then there's going to be a sound of the trumpet. Now, when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, what we saw was back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, Paul is talking to the people in Corinth that we will be transformed, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And so a lot of people, we're going to look at the trumpets today. At the last trumpet, some people think it's the seven trumpets after the seven bowls that that's when the rapture happens. This is how we get this confusion about the rapture takes place in the middle of the tribulation. And I'm going to try to explain to you as to why I believe it's going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation. As a matter of fact, the, the rapture takes place in the seven-year tribulation uh, follows that, that, that the time of the rapture the church is taken up. But, but anyways, so there, there is this, there's this thought that is that last trumpet is that trumpet from the, seven, from the seven trumpets of the seven angels. The problem is, is that John hadn't even written this portion, that portion of the scriptures yet. The book of Revelation, John hadn't had the revelation revealed to him as of yet. So they didn't know about the seventh trumpet. And if you look over in the Old Testament, there was always a trumpet sound for noise and for various types of, uh, uh, of commands and gathering the people together. And, you know, just, just with all these trumpets for war. And trumpets were always used to get people's attention. In the times that God was going to get people's attention, he would blast his trumpet, the trumpet of God, and it would, they would gather all the people. In the Old Testament, as we went across this here a few weeks ago, when the people were out in the wilderness, they were marching. And they, had, they needed some sort of marching order. There were probably about, we'd say, 800,000 fighting men, so probably about a, a million men. 
And then if they had women, of course they did, wives, it's maybe 2 million to 1.5, and then children. So you're looking at anywhere from 1 to maybe 3 million people out in the wilderness. To gather all these people together was, was a task. But God organized it in such a way that when the priests would blast the trumpet, the first group would take off. And they would blast the trumpet again, the second group would take off. And the third group, and at the last trumpet, after they all lined up, they would blast the last trumpet, let's go. And they would take off. Some commentators believe that that's the trumpet that is going to be used at that time. Regardless, the one thing that we have to be, be concerned about is that there is going to be a trumpet and the dead in Christ are going to rise first, is what he says here. Uh, once again, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. The, the, the cry, the command, Jesus Christ coming for us, he meets us in midair. He doesn't place his feet on the Mount of Olives, as Ezekiel would say, he does, or Joel. He doesn't say that he's come and established his kingdom. We meet him in the air, in the clouds. That's where we meet him at. This is the, the portion of scripture in John chapter 14 where Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you with me. You see, when Jesus returns at the end, we'll see here in just a bit, when he returns at the end, he's coming down to establish the millennial kingdom on this planet. For a thousand years he will reign and we will come back with him. But prior to that returning of Jesus Christ and us with him, he's going to come on a white horse. But prior to that, we are taken up. And this is what Paul is trying to get across here. Don't worry about those that have died in Christ. And, and he's not trying to make a, an argument for the rapture, but it, it all fits into place as you, as you see that this is what he's talking about. And somehow he must have explained this to him and, and them, and, and it's grown and it's developed. And at this point, Paul is just saying, when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to take us with, us, with him. If you understand Jewish weddings, weddings took days. Sometimes even a week, depending on how rich the family was. And the whole process was that the groom would go and bring the bride and present her to the father. And in that presentation, the celebration would happen, the party and the eating and just the dancing and just a really great time. This, this feast that would be prepared for all the guests. And during that time, then at the end of the celebration was the consummation of the wedding. They became man and wife. And so the picture of this is Jesus Christ returns for his bride. He's been building this mansion and he comes for his bride, takes her up into heaven and presents her to God and says, look, this is what I died for, Lord. This is what I died for. And he presents her to God and there's a celebration in heaven for seven years. And then we return to this planet to establish the millennial kingdom. Once again, all these things from the Old Testament. And we touched a lot on that during the time that we were talking about that. And so, so then last week we talked about verses 1 and 2. We only were able to get part of that. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The rapture, the day of the Lord. Two different events. Everything that we see right now is pointing to the day of the Lord. The way the world is being uh, just manipulated, organized, how everything seems to be falling into a certain one world order, how everything is chaotic, how all these things seem to be just falling apart, and how we need a, a spiritual leader, a political leader, a, a military leader to, to get things under control, how we need, how we need all these things to, to be 
put into place, and, and many of you that have been following the political realm or the world news or anything around uh, in the news, you're noticing that there's a lot of this stuff going on, the one monetary value, all these things that are just being placed into effect. We'll, we'll speak on that as well in just a bit. And all, all of this is being put into effect so that one day we will have everything together. And Paul says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's at the end. And it's kind of, it's kind of you know, you wonder, how does that happen? If we're watching all these things unfold, how does, it, how does he come like a thief in the night? And a very good picture was in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25, when he talks about the ten virgins and their lamps. And they anticipated the groom to show up during the day. And uh, the ten wise virgins, they had oil for their lamp because they didn't know when he was going to come in case he came at night. And everybody else thought, he, he's not going to come at night. He's, he's going to come during the daytime to, to make sure that he sees us. But he, lo and behold, he came in the middle of the night. And the five foolish virgins that didn't have oil, they says, give us some of your oil. No, then we won't have enough. Go get some. And as they went, the groom took the five wise virgins. And so the, the event is going to come like you wouldn't even know it. As a matter of fact, we'll see that Jesus Christ himself, he likens that event like the, uh, the days of Noah. Everybody was married and given in marriage and there was celebration, all kinds of things happening. Then all of a sudden the ark closes and the flood comes. That's when it was too late. <clears throat> so this, this idea of Jesus Christ returning like a thief in the night. We saw this last week. We looked at this. And it's, it's going to catch us, it's going to catch people that are unprepared. They're not going to be ready. Uh, and Paul says here, and I like what, the way he says this in verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief of the night. But right before that he says, You have no need to have anything written to you. In other words, you don't need to know <clears throat> when that's going to happen. You don't need to know when, the Lord's going to, when that day of the Lord is going to happen. Uh, all you need to know is that it's going to happen. And um, before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, and all the disciples were around him. They just saw him crucified. Now they see him resurrected. And he's been there for 40 days. And he's been teaching and ministering to the people and showing himself to, to the apostles. And 500 people saw him. And now here he is on the mountain and he's getting ready to ascend. And the disciples ask him, are you now going to establish the kingdom? Is, is, this, is this the time? Is this the day of the Lord? And Jesus tells them, it is not for you to know. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons when all of this is to take place. Don't worry about it. You be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and throughout the whole parts of the world. And so Paul is basically saying the same thing. You don't need nobody to tell you this. You don't need to know. What you need to do is you need to be ready. Verse 3. I just want to read that, uh, just verse 3 for right now. Uh, I'm going to read 1, 2, and 3. And kind of give you, just show you what it is that Paul is talking about here in these three verses. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Father in heaven, thank you once again for your word that has been preserved through the generations and how it's been accurately uh, transcribed and, and translated for our, our benefits that we too can read and understand and hear your word. We know that your word is sufficient. We need nothing else. We know that your word is um, infallible. There's no errors. We know that your word is inerrant. And we know that your word is powerful and holy and, and inspired. And we know that your word speaks to us every time that we open. 
So thank you once again, God, for this uh, portion of scripture that we're into today. Help us to see it and understand it, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone says, Amen. In verse 3, Paul succinctly summarizes Revelation chapter 6. He, he basically summarizes the whole end days. Let, let me show you this here very quickly. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You see, when, when we're talking about the end time, and we're talking about the tribulation time, and, and I, we don't have a lot of time, and, and I, I've been dealing with this for the last couple of weeks. How am I going to approach this, this portion of Scripture? Am I going to dive into the book of Revelation? Am I going to go back into Matthew 24? Am I going to look into Ezekiel? Am I going to do all the end times? Bless you, me, huh? And I'm going to, am, I, am I going to continue? How am I going to do this? Or do I, am I going to be as, as honest to the Word of God as I've been in the past to just read it and go through 1 Thessalonians and go to 2 Thessalonians and wait until we get to the book of Revelation to actually expound on it? Bless you as well. I know, it's, it's catchy. Um, and so we have, we have this, this understanding that, first of all, if you've been following anything in, in current events, things are getting bad, right? I mean, I, I believe that people ought to be at least concerned or at least aware of the things that are going on and the things that are going on behind the scenes that, and things that are going on right in front of your face that we're just kind of like, eh, well, I mean, it's, what are we going to do? And as these things are taking place, this is, this is the portion of Scripture where we're at today, and this is why we're talking about this. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read through this and try to, as best I can, to bring in those topics that I just talked about. And hopefully somewhere down the road, not too long from now, really just get into the end time and, and do a sermon series on the book of Revelation at a different time. Because from here we're going to go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians really deals with the end times more than 1 Thessalonians. So maybe after we go out of 2 Thessalonians, I might just jump over and uh, instead of going to Timothy. Timothy is important. I, I think we should know what, what the qualifications of an elder and a ruler, uh, excuse me, an elder and a pastor is and a deacons. And we need to know what the what qualifications and how Paul ministered to this young man. Yet, I'm really just kind of praying about how do I approach this? Is it going to be another, uh, another message? Which more than likely, that's what it's going to be at a different time. With that said, let's dive right into this. Verse 3, once again. <clears throat> As I mentioned, people are going to be saying there is peace, there is peace. Paul put this in this, this order on intentionally. He talks about the rapture first, and then he talks about the day of the Lord. So for me... I, I see this as Paul is saying, you see, the rapture is going to have to happen first. He didn't go into an expounding on how he knew this or, you know, all the Old Testament. Ezekiel, really, uh, Zechariah, excuse me, Zechariah, really just, if you, if you understand Zechariah, you'll start to see how all of this really plays, goes into play. Because in the Old Testament, they really just, they understood it. They just didn't understand how it's going to happen or who it was going to be, but they knew the sequence of it. And Zechariah does a phenomenal job in, in putting it all together for us. And so what Paul did, um, I, I would believe that he knew the book of Zechariah. He says, well, first of all, there's got to be this taking out of the, the, the world, the, those that are gods. And then he's going to unleash his punishment on the world. And I'm sure that's how, how he interpreted and how he explained it. Because Paul gives it to us in that same order. First the rapture. Now the day of the Lord. But there's other reasons as to why I believe it's going to happen um, you know, prior to that. And, and before I get to that, just so you know, there are at least three different views. And I just found a fourth one. The first view is uh, pre-millennium. Uh, pre, 
tribulation rapture, meaning that the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. Now, there's also a mid-tribulation, which is called the mid-trib, pre-trib for short, for the pre-tribulation, mid-trib or mid-tribulation, that the rapture happens right at the unfolding or the unsealing of the seven seals. And uh, this is when it takes place. Now there's also a, another view, which is post-tribulation, that it happens after the tribulation, the rapture takes off. The problem with that one, and many people are starting to get away from it, is because, well, Jesus Christ comes and he raptures us out, then he brings us right back, because that's what he does. If the, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. We all agree on that. So how is it? I don't, you know, and some people see value in that and also, also see the verses for that as well. But the first thing, one of the things that I want to at least get across is that the rapture has always been unexpected. It's always been known in the Old Testament, and it's just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It's going to be unexpected. It's gonna be, he's going to be taken up. It's kind of like Enoch. Enoch was taken up. Now, we, we understand that the word rapture is not in the Bible. It comes from the Latin word, rapito, raptio. And raptio means to rapidly or quickly. It happens just taken up. And so if you don't want to believe in the rapture because the word rapture is not in the Bible, then understand that you're going to be taken up. Call it a taken upness or whatever you want to call it. But Paul says we're going to be taken up. And it's going to happen unexpectedly like Elijah was. Elijah was unexpectedly taken up like uh, uh, the man I just said a little while ago. Uh, Enoch. Enoch was not. Walk with God and all of a sudden was not. You know, just boom, just gone. Was taken up. And there's this taking upness that happens in Scripture all the time. And l- last week, and I just read this uh, to you just a little bit ago in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with the cry of the command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him. And in 1 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So it's unexpected. It's a surprise. It's something, you see, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, you can pretty much gauge it because everything has already been fulfilled, and now it's time for him to establish his kingdom. All the, the seals have been opened. All the trumpets have been blown. All the bowls have been dispensed. Everything has taken place. And, and now it's, it's, it's final. You can pretty much judge it. And if you knew when the tribulation started, you would know pretty much when it's going to end. But for the rapture, here's one of the things that you have to understand. There is no sign for the rapture. All the signs point to the end. And if the rapture happens seven years prior to the end... And we're seeing all these things just accumulate and all the signs just being displayed right in front of us. You have to wonder, you know, that, that rapture should be happening anytime soon because that, that end time seems to be getting closer and closer. And I can't believe that it's going to happen within, you know, seven years. There's another reason why. Number two is that the lawless one needs to be revealed. The rapture can't start until the lawless one happens. When we get into 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, chapter 2, I'll explain that a little bit more. But Paul says here in chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 7, For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. He who now, and, and we'll, we'll see this, he who now restrains the lawlessness or the one at work, the lawless one, is the Holy Spirit. And once he is 
raptured or taken out of the way, then Antichrist will be revealed, which is the lawless one. And, and the Antichrist will be revealed when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. He will show himself and he will, he will help people to see, look, I'm here to save you. I'm here to take care of you. I'm here to take care of what those Christians all messed up. It's because of their values and their ideas. And, you know, they wouldn't let people just do whatever they wanted to do. They hindered you. They, they, they caused you from going forward because they discriminated against your, your desires and your, your taste and whatever it might be. Your culture, your social status, your gender. And now that they're out of the way, let me show you a better way. As a matter of fact, back in 1973, I don't know if you know this or not, but the World, uh, the World Economic Forum uh, by Carl Schultz has, was started. And they've been doing this reset type of a thing. They're, they're changing everything right now. Everything is such an, in such a flood. You know, and we're, we're looking at this as, as it's unfolding for the last 50 years. This has been going on for some time now since, well, 53 years now. And uh, no, actually, it was in 73 that it started. So, yeah, this is 50 years right now. And, and a lot of the policies they, that they started back then, they have this Davos uh, um, manifesto that they're all operating under. A lot of it you've already heard. You've already seen uh, on the social injustice and the, and the way they're changing laws, not only in the United States, but worldwide. They want this world peace. They want this world uh, economic unity. They, you know, and, and what they're trying to do is build this, this area, this, this world that is going to just be uh, you know, a utopia. And most of these people that are involved in it are, are not, well, most of, I, I would say all of them are not Christians. There are a lot of religious leaders in it, but they're not Christians worshiping God and worshiping Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. But they do have a religion. And they have all these political leaders, they have all these financial leaders, they have all these people. And everything has changed the way they're looking at the how to make a profit. Where before, as you make as much as you want, now everybody's agreed. And, and these companies that are all gathered together, they've all agreed to, you know, what we need to do is make just enough for all of us and kind of pass, pass it all around. But there's not enough for everybody on the planet. Well, we'll take care of that. We'll take care of that. I'll, I'll share that with you in just a little bit. But this lawless one is going to come up and say, look. World, I've got the solution. Now, I don't know if it would be the World Economic Forum or the World Forum of Economics. I don't know if that's going to be, but it's going to be something like that. We've been calling it, many people have called it in the past, either the Bilderbergs or the Illuminatis or whatever the case may be. But this has been already happening for 50 years. And many people right now are just barely being awakened to it. What? They're doing, and, and most of it is way beyond our control as, a, as the United States of America. This is not a, an American thing. This is not a United States of America. This is a global thing with China being one of the main leaders. Uh, the, the, the Arab nations being another leader. Uh, you know, Switzerland is, is where, they, where they all meet at. All of these things are already in place for the lawless one to be revealed. Another reason why I think that the rapture is going to happen prior to uh, the, the tribulation is well, because God promised that the church would be protected. He promised the church that he would, be, he would protect us from God's wrath. In Romans 5, 9, he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The time of the tribulation is the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, when we read this part, he says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The wrath to come is for the time of the tribulation. And in, in uh, verse 9 of chapter 5, we will see, For God has not destined us for wrath, but 
to obtain salvation through our Lord. A fourth reason, and there's a few, but I'm just going to point out for them. Christians saved during the tribulation are not going to go into the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 20, John tells us, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. If the church is already saved... And we are left in the tribulation to be in to, to go part of that, whatever it is the wrath of God is having is doing. How is it that I'm going to get saved again with the beheading of, of and because of my testimony? My testimony is my testimony, and it and it counts for what God has done for me. He He's the one that saved me, and He saved me for that specific reason to get me out of this place so that I wouldn't have to go through this. And so Christians that are saved during, then there are going to be those that are going to be saved during. There are a lot of people that just won't get it, won't get it until ultimately there's going to be a lot of people that are going to have to give their life for Jesus Christ. Now, I've talked to people that have said before, you know, I, I'll just wait until that time. I'll wait to give my life. I, I will sacrifice myself at that time and I'll give my life during the tribulation. My response has always been, you know, you're not even willing to live for Christ right now. How in the world are you going to be willing to die for Christ when it's the most important time of your life. There, there's other reasons as to why, but I believe that the tribulation is, uh, is going to take place after the rapture happens. Let me, let me share with you just a little bit about what Paul is saying here. And we see what Paul has said here in this verse in what's called the seven seals. And the seven seals are found in Revelation chapter 6. If you'd like to turn there, you can. In Revelation chapter 6, <clears throat> And you know what? While I'm there, I might as well just share with you another reason. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, what happens is that Jesus Christ is talking to the church. The church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, the church at Pergamum, the church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Laodicea. The church, the church, the church. And after chapter 3, the church is no longer mentioned. For the rest of the book of Revelation, all the way to chapter 22, there's no mention of the church. And so the church is no longer, to some people, believe that it's there. As a matter of fact, some people will use this verse, and it's not a very strong, compelling verse to use, but they'll use this verse in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, after this, because after he's talking to the, after the churches were, were put on notice, after they were given these letters, after John wrote these letters, he says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. Some pre-tribulation rapture people believe that that right there is when he says, come on up here. The trumpet. There's that voice. That It's a trumpet. It's a voice. And so that's the last trumpet. And so the church is taken up. It, it, it sounds good. And, and, you know, I like it because I come to it with that understanding that, well, we're going to be, tra- we're going to be raptured before the tribulation. But you can't come to that verse with the preconceived idea. You have to get everything else in Scripture to do that. And, uh, but some people like to use that. And so here's what happens in chapter 5. There is a scroll that is given, that is out, and, and this scroll has seven seals. This scroll, 
and, and if you knew the Roman times, again, if, if you understand historical times, the Romans, the Greeks, the Jews, if you understand the temple, the book of Revelation is, is pretty simple to decipher. You can decode it with the Old Testament and some of the things of the New Testament as well. And, and you can decipher what he's talking about. He's talking about the animals. He's talking about numbers. They all, they're all significant. They're symbolic. They mean something. You know, like for instance, like I said last week, if I were to say to you, uh, you, you know, the rams, the colts, the bears, the eagles, what am I talking about? Yeah, football. This is my favorite season of the year, football season, which I think they started already, right? Did the rams win yesterday? No? Okay, good. Uh, I'm a Charger fan. <laughs> you, you know, you think, and so when you hear about the, 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 the lion and the ram and, and you know, and, and the, the bear, it's symbolic. And we can get into that. When, you, when he's talking numbers, if I were to say 9-11, what does that mean to you? Terrorists, right? Remember that? I mean, just that thought, just that word, just that, that phrase catapults you right back to where you were when you first saw it on TV, whom you were with. It's some, for some, it even elicits the emotions of, of that day. And so there's, there's numbers, there's uh, characters, the characters, and all kinds of things that are symbolic. But if you understand the, what was going on at that time, this is why it's important to, to read this together. As a matter of fact, one of the, the most important reasons to read this, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says here, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is 2,000 years ago. And here they were, they were saying it's, it's near. So anyways, you have all these things that are happening. There's a, there's a scroll. This scroll is significant. It has seven seals. Anything with seven seals or more, three seals or more, actually, was more of a title deed. You had seals for marriage contracts. You had seals for business dealings. Just one seal, maybe two if it was important. But three signified something very important. And more than likely, uh, most title deeds were given at least three seals. Every seal was witnessed by one person. Here is a seal with seven, here is a document with seven seals. And they would fold it, and they'd sign their name and, and, then, and then stamp it. And then they would fold it again, sign their name and stamp it. And, they, and they'd do this seven times. This document, this scroll had seven seals. And so the question is, who's going to be able to open it? Who can open this? And of course, it is the Lamb who sits upon the throne. Um, it says, and it says here in verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are, seven spirit, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Again, symbolism. Uh, we don't have time to get into that, but we will. We'll, we'll get into it soon. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So God has this deed, this title deed to the earth. And the only one worthy to open it is the lamb, the lamb that was slain. In verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here it is, Jesus Christ, the one that died. He, he redeemed, he bought, he purchased this property. He, he purchased you. 
And that's why he's worthy to open it. And every one of these seals are symbolic. Seal number one. Seal number one in chapter six. He says, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and the conquest. This white horse, these are called or referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first four seals. The first four seals are considered as the the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the white horse symbolizes world peace. We, We say world peace because... This is what he says. Now, I'd like for you to, if, well, first of all, he says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. The white horse is the symbol of conquering or of conquered. When a Roman king or, or a, any type of king would conquer a nation, he would always ride in on a horse, a white horse displaying, I won. And now there's peace in the land because of what I have done in this land. And when this king, when this person is riding, this rider is riding the white horse, and his rider had a bow. Now, look at this. He didn't have a sword, which is the attack mechanism, but he had a bow and had no arrows. Once again, symbolic of we're not at war. He didn't win this peace by fighting. He won this peace by negotiating. As a matter of fact, one of the signs that's going to happen prior to the end is that this world leader, this lawlessness, this lawless one, he will be able to establish a peace between uh, the whole world and Israel. Everybody's going to love Israel because of what this conquering hero can do without ever shooting one bullet. He'll come in. And he has a crown. This crown is very significant because in Greek it's called Stephanos. Now the crown that Jesus Christ wears are, are, are diadems. But a Stephanos was like a wreath, was like a trophy, was something that was given to him. Not because he, not because he fought for it, not because he's royalty, but he won. And so they put this wreath, this olive wreath. It's kind of like the wreath that they would put on Olympic athletes. And that was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. And he conquered by just speaking peace. Peace, everybody. Peace. Now look at this. This is very significant. In Matthew 24, and and I was going to have us go back and forth, but you know what? I just wrote it. I'm hoping that it comes out here. Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. Jesus, as he's talking about the end times, when they ask him, when are all these things going to happen? Jesus just perfectly lines up what John writes in John chapter 6. And Jesus said to them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. There are people that are going to come during the, this is after the the rapture. This is during the tribulation. After this world peace comes in and people are trying to figure out what happened to all these Christians, a leader is going to step in and say, you know what? Let me tell you guys, I am a spiritual leader. Many of you guys know me. Uh, I've been in this Christendom for many years and you understand my stance on God's word. And so therefore, don't worry about it. It's going to be, there's peace. I mean, we're, we're, let's all just get along. Let's, let's invite everybody. You know, why, why ostracize people of different faiths, of different genders? Why, why do that? Why not allow women to be pastors? Why not? I mean, we should all just be in, in love with one another because God is love. This is a religion of sorts, a political religious leader that is going to bring everybody together from all walks of life. And he's going to say, don't worry about it. Peace, peace. This is the same kind of peace that was given in the Old Testament. When the 
when the prophets would come in and pronounce judgment upon the people, and then the false prophets come in, don't worry about what they're saying. Peace, it's, nothing's going to happen. And it always unfolded the way God had said it would. And so this white horse is not the white horse at the end of Revelation chapter 19. We know that uh, Jesus Christ will return on a white horse. In chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. There's the crowns. That's the difference between a Stephanos and a diadem. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Faithful and true is who he is. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so in 19, yes, he's on a white horse, but he comes establishing his kingdom. Here, this, white, this rider on the white horse, he's bringing peace, which is a symbol of a force that is to come. Second seal is the red horse, war. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This great sword is not a big sword. This great sword made a lot of damage. It wasn't a huge sword. The word that is used here in Greek is a little sword that the Roman soldiers would use for close combat. And this sword caused a lot of damage, is what, the, what he's trying to get across. In Matthew 24, verse 6, Jesus said, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. So John and Jesus, side by side, when you're looking at these horses. Seal number three is the black horse. Famine. Famine. When he opened the third seal, I saw the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a Daenerys, and three quarts of barley for a Daenerys. And, I do, not, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This is a strange saying because, well, first of all, what's a Daenerys? You know, what's wheat and what's barley? And, and this, the, the black horse has always been, black has always been associated with famine <clears throat> in the Old Testament. And it's always been associated with the needs of other people, something that is, is empty, it's black. First of all, a Daenerys is a day's wage. A Daenerys is a day's wage. So if somebody made 20 bucks an hour for eight hours, that's what, 160 bucks. So in order to buy a quart of wheat, a quart of wheat is enough to sustain one person for one day. Which wheat was a staple, and uh, you know you can make bread and all kinds of things, and it's and it's got it's got some nutritional value, and so but but if you have a family of at least three or four, then you're going to have to probably do something with barley. Barley is really more of a less uh, nutritional valued grain, but it'll fill you, but it doesn't have the nutritional value. One of the things that's happening right now in the world that's setting this thing up right now, this barley and this grain, is that. The good food, the wheat, is being taken away while the cheap food is being displayed. Don't know if you've heard a lot about how they're taking the meat products out of the circulatory, out of the system. They're not stocking 
beef as much as they used to. They're making now a fake beef. The last couple of years, there's been chicken plants that have been exploding and blowing up. And now, lo and behold, guess what? We've been inventing a fake chicken, which is better for you because, number one, it doesn't cause all the pollution and all the global warming that's going on. And the cows, you know, well, you know, they're not passing gas. I don't know if I can say that word in, in in church, you know, they're not they're not passing gas and just destroying the ozone layer with all that smell and all that that mooing and stuff. And so we've created and here's here's what they're doing. And there seems to be this push for people to stockpile and start stockpiling. And, and there seems to be this this fear that, you know, we're running out of food. We're running out, you know, all these things that seem to be happening. And, and it's interesting because all of these things are, are falling in line with what Jesus says in Matthew 24, what John says in Revelation chapter 6. And so a quart of wheat is good for a day's wage, but it's barely enough. What about my car? What about my house? What about, you know, if all, if all I can afford is that much, you know, and that's all I can make in one day. That means we all got to be working somehow. Well, guess what? We're all working already somehow anyways, right? If we have two income families. Everything is, just seems to be falling into place. And uh, in, in chapter 24 of Matthew 7, Jesus said, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. Seal number four. And I'm just kind of going over very quickly what, what Jesus and John are saying. By the way, it's Jesus talking in, in Revelation as well. Is the pale horse. The pale horse... Uh, the word that is used there is chloris, uh, which is like a chloroform color. It's like a, a greenish. It's, it's the color of what a decomposed body would look like, the greenish color. And this color here, this pale horse, is symbolic of death. Revelation 6, 7 says, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider was named Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. Matthew 24, 7 and 8. And there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Paul tells us that it's going to be like a birth pain. Jesus is telling us it's going to be like birth pangs. And uh, for, for women that have been, and, and those of you that have witnessed, a woman goes through this very uncomfortable stage for nine months. And then right before the baby was delivered, oh, all right, I think it's time. You know, I think it's time to go. And a couple of minutes later, oh, there goes another one. And little by little, until that violent push that needs to happen for the child to come out with all the pain and all the agony and all, the, all, the, all that stuff that comes, that comes with bearing a child. You think about the end times. That's how it's going to happen. It's going to start. It's going to increase and little by little until at the end and boom it just explodes and then we are left with a brand new baby jesus returns and establishes a new kingdom a new home and in matthew 24 7 as i mentioned these things must happen and you know it's interesting because he says uh, in in for the black horse for the i'm sorry the pale horse he says that authority was given to him over one-fourth of the earth right now there is 8.1 billion people estimated on the planet, according to the world counter that people are counting. And 1.8, but we'll just say 8 billion people. That's a lot of people. It is believed that once we hit 10 billion people, the world cannot sustain us anymore. 
The thing about this World Economic Forum is what they're trying to do is build this utopia that can only house 5 billion people. So we're 3 billion people overdue. And something has to happen. In order for that to happen, there's going to have to be a huge population just be taken out. Now, if we have 8 billion people, and the Bible says that one-fourth are going to be taken out, that means that close to 2 billion people need to be taken, eradicated. You, you know, so right there, that might be the rapture, part of it. That might be the rapture. Uh, but what this is saying is those that are left over during this time, during that time, this pale horse is given the authority to destroy one-fourth of the world. So let's say there's 8 billion people left over. So 2 billion people are going to be taken out, and so you have 6 billion people left. That's still too many people. Something else has to take place. Where are all those people going to come from? Well, in North America, there's over 600, 600 million people. In South America, there's over 440 million people. The total, there's about 1 billion people there. And China has another billion, 300. So you guesstimate the population of North and South America and the population of China. That's a lot of people that will be killed by a pale horse. Seal number five. When he opened the fifth seal is the martyred souls or the souls of the martyrs. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And what, what they had... What, In Jesus' uh, Olivet Discourse, I don't have it here, but if you look at the, what Jesus said, that you will be persecuted, you'll be handed over. You'll be handed over to, to, to those in authority because of my name's sake and for the testimony that, uh, that, that we give. And those that are martyred, what Paul is saying here, excuse me, what John is saying here, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. They're, they have no bodies yet because they haven't been resurrected. When we are resurrected or those that are caught up, that we're going to be given a new body. And when we're in heaven, we have our souls connected with our bodies and those who had been slain for the word of God and for their witness that they had borne. And in the rest of Revelation 6, not, uh, 6 verses 9 through 11, it says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there is this persecution going on through the tribulation, people that are dying for the cause of Christ. And I just want to conclude with, uh, no, not conclude, but go to the sixth seal. The sixth seal, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This sixth seal causes this great earthquake. Now we've had big earthquakes, but we've never felt an earthquake like this before. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in verse 29 of Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken in line with what Jesus said in the book of Revelation. 
This earthquake, it is already known that we sit on this, this magma that's all over the world and these tectonic plates that are all interconnected. Some, some people have said something to the effect of we might experience what's called a polar shift. I don't know if you've heard of that or not, where the North Pole and the South Pole, they get so much snow that eventually, and this has happened before, according to some people, that eventually they get top and bottom heavy that it just goes, it just, it just shifts all over. And so all of this starts to melt because now it's on the equator and this starts to freeze over. And part of the reasoning for that is because as they've explored the North and the South Pole, they, found, they have found tropical plants like ferns and other things in those areas. And they wonder, okay, where did that come from? Well, the only way that that can happen was... A polar shift that used to be in the equator. Now it's up here. So maybe that took place. That's what wiped out the dinosaurs. You know, something like that. I, I have a biblical theory. I believe that, um, as the Bible teaches, that there was this mist, this waters above the earth prior to the flood, and this mist that protected the world. The whole world was, was kind of like a tropical paradise. And it protected humanity from the violent rays, the harmful rays of the sun that was able to give them this life to live a thousand years. And so when God caused it to rain, he says the water came up from below and from above. And as he squeezed this mist, it just caused the whole world to, to flood. And then the North Pole and the South Pole became very evident because of the equator. The equator was closer to the, the sun and everything else was colder. I mean, that's just one theory, and I, I like that theory. It doesn't say that in the Bible. But during this time, this, the sixth seal, what it does is it brings this fear. And people are going to do whatever they can to be able to get away from this fear. Now, if this pandemic that just happened, you know, these last couple of years, has taught us anything, they can scare us into doing just about anything we, they want, right? They're already gearing up for another one. They're already gearing up for another pandemic of sorts. They're already pushing this agenda that, you know, okay, well, it's going to be, it's going to be worse. I, I don't know if you heard about this this last week. Some, sometime at the beginning of the year, there was this lab from China that was found in Reedley. Reedley is up by Fresno the, in the Central Valley. I know where Reedley is at. I grew up in the Central Valley. And this lab was hosting, and they had cultures of all these diseases, and what they were supposed to be doing, this lab from China, people that live in China that, were, that didn't speak any English, what they were supposed to be doing was manufacturing birth control and COVID testing. That's what their license said. But when uh, an animal control person in this little town of Reedley has probably about five, ten thousand people, is not really equipped to, to do the, the kind of uh, investigation that was needed, says that these animals are dying out here. What's going on? You know, this is cruelty to the animals. And as they, she walked in, she saw these mice. What are these lap rats doing here? I thought you guys were doing pregnancy tests and COVID tests. That's what you guys said you guys are creating or doing here. So they called the FDA and they all showed up. And, animal, it, and it turned out to be that this was some sort of lab that they were making in our backyard here in California. And no telling how many of these types of labs from China, mind you. <laughs> This is not being rub, run by people in, from the city, from Fresno. This is Chinese people operating. And, and the funny thing, I say, is that this lab used to be up north somewhere in a different state. And it's moved from state to state. It was in Texas. It went to Oregon. It went to Washington. came to California up north. And then it came to central California. And that's when they, as they followed the paper trail, who knows about this? And why are they allowing this to take place? This, this fear is, is, is a real fear. And, and if you allow it to just grip you now, 
And, and this, this, is, this is what the sixth seal does. Because of all these things that are being, taking place, the earthquakes and everything else. Now, I want you to see something in the seventh seal. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, before we get there, one of the things that happens as we're in the book of Revelation, in, in, um, the, after the sixth seal, but during the sixth seal, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became as black as, as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Now, we, we need to understand that if a star were to fall from the sky toward earth, I mean, it wouldn't even make it <laughs> to the earth. We'd be burnt up before it even got anywhere close. This word star is also used for meteorites and such. You know, you've seen what happens. Uh, some of these movies that meteor showers happen and they just, just destroy all kinds of things. So more than likely, the writer is talking about meteor showers. The sky vanished like a scroll. You know, I, I believe those that are talking about global warming and this, you know, save the planet, they're, they're, they're right. I, I believe that, yeah, one day the ozone layer is not going to be there. You know, it's going to be rolled back as a scroll. But it's not because of what you and I do, because of the aerosol cans and all that stuff, the gas that we use. It's not because of any of that. It's because it's already been, it's already been written down. And verse 15, then the kings of this, this is interesting. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, this sounds like a movie that I just saw called Greenland, where they were all on top of a, in, a, in an ark because all this, the world was coming to an end and everything was coming down. And I think it was Gerard Butler that was in it. And, and they were all trying to get to, to Greenland because that's where all these arks were at. And as the flood came, these arks were able to float around. They, but these arks were deep inside of the mountains. And, and I thought, you know, I've seen this movie. Well, you know, God saw this movie too. But actually he created the real thing. And they all hid. They went into these mountains. And, and, and you would think that, okay, they, they got together and they started calling. They had a prayer circle. They started praying. And you would think, well, well, finally, you know, somebody gets it. After all this is going on, they finally get it. And they were calling. You know what they were calling out to? They had a prayer circle. They were praying to Mother Nature. Calling to the mountains and the rocks. And it's not like they were stupid, which I think it is. It's not like they didn't know. It's not like they were ignorant of what was going on because they were calling, fall on us. And what does he say? And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They knew who it was. They know who it is. They know it's God. He sits on the throne. They know it's Jesus Christ that's causing all these things. And what they want Mother Earth to do is to hide them because they have more faith in their structure and in their world that they're trying to preserve and save than they do in God. These guys hate God. This whole world thing that they're doing, has it, it's going to benefit. It's not going to benefit you and me, though. Not people like us. It's going to benefit them. They're trying to get rid of as many people as possible. And only because it's already been prophesied. But they don't know that. They don't even realize on how it is that they are following what God's already predestined. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The seventh seal doesn't come in until chapter 8, but the seventh seal, all it does is when that opens up, then the seven angels come out with the seven trumpets and one trumpet after another. All that to say is when you go back to 1 Thessalonians, 
You go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at this one more time. Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace, the white horse, there is peace. Then what happens is all these seals are opened up and, uh, and they say, while there is peace, there is peace. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. These labor pains of the seals and the destruction of this planet from peace to destruction is what Paul talked about just right there in that one verse. And how he just, you know, just put it in really succinct order. So that's how it's going to happen. And now we have to go to book of Revelation, the, you know, the Old Testament, Jesus' Olivet Discourse in 24 and 25 to see the, the rest of it. And it's not over. That's just the first of the seals. Then it's the trumpets. Then it's the bowls. Oh, and it gets worse. Why? Do we need to know this? Well, if we go back to right there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the last verse, 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We need to encourage one another. The encouragement of people is why it is that we need to know this. Because it will happen. And if you followed anything of what's going on in the world, it's taking place right now. It's happening. It's coming to fruition. Let me ask you to stand. How am I to live? What am I to do? Well, I, I believe that, as Paul just said, we need to encourage one another with these things. What things? Well, we need to know what those things are. How is it that I know those things? Well, it's written right here. Encourage one another with these things. So that, in that sense, you know that you're not afraid of what's going to happen. Because, number one, you won't be here. But there are people that you know that will be. Unless they, something changes. And those are the people that we need to talk to. Those are the people that we need to reach. Father in heaven, thank you again. You've given us... Uh, a perfect example of, of what Paul is talking about here in just this one verse. How it's loaded and packed with just everything that we just went over. From the peace to destruction. And I'm sure that the people that he was writing to understood this. He talked to them about this. He under, they understood this. He reminded them of the things and the teachings that they had given them. So Father, help us to understand it even more so ourselves. So that we in turn can share with others. Thank you once again, Lord, for your love and direction in all things. Father, and I pray that as we come closer to you, we draw uh, strength from you, that as you, Holy Spirit, encourage us and move us, that we come to know you even more so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen and amen. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about the day of the Lord. I'll be up here for a moment if you'd like to come forward.